Hi, Pastor John here. Welcome to our service. Today, we're going to hear the story of Uzzah and his tragic ending. Our sermon asks the question, if we act unintentionally, is it still sin? Let's join the service to hear the answer, and I invite you to stay at the end for details on how we can serve you, our online audience, better. I'm just standing here thanking God that he's given us teachers and speakers, worship leaders, uh, all focusing on Christ. We are a blessed congregation. I'd like you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 5 through 11. A couple weeks ago, Kelly and I were out on the road somewhere, I think Pennsylvania, and um, she had been telling me to be careful when I lift up the lid to the console in our car. And, and so I thought I'd be real smart. We were getting out of the car. And I thought she was clear. And I slammed the thing down. And all of a sudden I hear go, ah! And yeah, it, it was, I, I had injured her. I mean, she had a huge bruise. I thought maybe I had broken something. And I, and, and I said, but I didn't mean it. Yeah, you know how effective that is. <laughs> I, I, I didn't mean it, but I, I did it, didn't I? <laughs> and, you know, I'll tell you how this resolves itself a little bit in a little bit, but here, here's the question before us today. If we sin unintentionally, if we don't mean it, is it still sin? Is it sin if it is unintentional? Because we kind of do that with our sin, don't we? I didn't mean it. I didn't mean to do that. I, I, I couldn't help myself. I, I didn't know what was going on. And we hope, we hope that somehow God's going to just kind of shake his head and go, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. I know your heart. You didn't mean it. So keep that thought in mind. Two weeks ago, we heard the story of Nadab and Abihu, uh, two priests who decided to do things a little bit different than the way God had told them to do it. And the results were absolutely disastrous. But regardless of what they did, we never really found out what the problem was. We need to understand that they made this conscious decision to make some changes to God's plan. Now, we learned a lesson about that. We don't get to tamper with God's word. This week, we're going to hear a story of a man who makes the same type of mistake, but does it unintentionally. And we'd like to believe that he does it instinctively. And that's probably exactly what happened. Our story starts with the Ark of the Covenant. Let me explain what this is. The Ark of the Covenant sat in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And uh, there were two cherubim on top of the Ark. And between uh, the, the wings of the cherubim was a seat of judgment, the seat of mercy. And the ark contained the tablets from the Ten Commandments, the second set. Because Moses destroyed the first set when he found out everybody was having a party when he was up on the mountain. And according to Hebrews chapter 9, it also includes a jar of manna uh, and Aaron's staff that budded. There's some question about whether or not that was actually in the ark or in front of the ark. But, you know, it, it, you can take a look at Hebrews 9 and see what you think of that. So the ark represents the presence of God's 
holiness among his people. On it sits the, the mercy seat, place of judgment, and above it hovers the Spirit of God, the one, the one who would judge us. It's so holy, it is so completely holy, the Jews, except for the priest, can't even look at it without bringing judgment down on themselves. So in 1 Samuel, uh, Saul is the king, and there's, there's a war with the Philistines, and the Jews make this decision that they need some help, and so they send for the ark. And they say, the ark will give us victory. And so they use the ark a little bit like an amulet, like, like a lucky charm or something. If the ark's here, the ark will help us win. And, well, the Philistines capture it. They have it for about seven months. And that, that's almost humorous because they suffer tumors and destruction and illness and just bad things are happening all around until they go, we got to give this thing back to them. This is, this is going crazy. You know, this is not something for us to have. So they put it on a cart and, and literally say, okay, if the cows take it back to the Jews, that's good with us. And of course, the cows walk right for the Jews. And it, the, the ark winds up in a town called Beth Shemesh, a small town, on what is known as a Shephelah. Now, Shephelah is a kind of a, a broad flatland that comes right up from the Mediterranean coast. You have the coast, you have the Shephelah, and then you get into the hill country of Jerusalem. And so Beth Shemesh is about 40 miles west of Jerusalem. And, and there, uh, after the ark is settled in the village, uh, about 70 men go in to take a look at it. And they all die. Not supposed to look at the ark. So Bethshemesh says, we've got to get this thing out of here. And they, they send it to Kiriath-Jerim, which is about 20 miles west of Jerusalem. Bethshemesh is about 40 miles. Kiriath-Jerim is about 20 miles. You see the ark is moving closer and closer to Jerusalem. And it stays there for about 20 years. And during those 20 years, David becomes king. And he captures Jerusalem and he makes it the capital of Israel. So in 2 Sam chapter 5, David decides to move the ark to Jerusalem. So he goes to Kiriath-Jerim and he has the ark placed on a cart. Now this is just what the Philistines did. And the cart is guided by Uzzah and Ahio and, begins to, and they begin to escort it to the capital. So this is, is Uzzah's story. I like to call him Uzzah. That's a pronunciation. But if we're going to Anglicanize this, it's Uzzah. So this is Uzzah's story. And this is also the first sign of trouble in Uzzah's story. Because Numbers 4 prescribes that the ark be moved by the Levites and the priests only. So these two brothers are Levites. Uh, but they are to carry it by hand. And Numbers clearly warns that not even the Levites can touch the ark or they'll die. Only the priests can touch the ark. Now, the, the text doesn't tell us why David would allow this to happen. But we know that he's aware of it because he is leading the procession from Kiriath-Jerim towards Jerusalem. And they're transporting the ark in the wrong manner. They're just not doing it the way they were told. And this is only the beginning of the trouble that's about to fall on David and his party. So 
our story rolls out in three acts. We will see music in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6, verse 5. We will see two mistakes in verses 6 through 8. And we will see a number of months in verses 9 through 11. Let's take a look at Act 1, the music. Verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. I love that they had castanets. Isn't that great? The whole nation is there. Everyone's turned out. It's a huge event. It's a momentous occasion. And naturally, the people want to celebrate. And this is, this is appropriate. But if you read the text carefully, there's something missing. And you've got to read, read it for what's not there rather than what's there. David has made all these preparations, but he never prays. And that's kind of a pattern in David's life. When he submits his plans to the Father, everything goes his way. When he doesn't, things go bad. Well, David fails to pray when he acts on his own. Things have a tendency to just go off the rails. And so what's going to happen in this situation? Well, for now, there's this victorious nation. They're celebrating. The Philistines have been defeated. They're celebrating in a historic moment. And with music and fanfare dominating the entire scenario. It's a bit reminiscent of the situation we saw two weeks ago with Nadab and Abihu, isn't it? Big celebration. Whole nation on hand. But something, something's just not quite right. And that takes us to Act 2, the, the mistakes. Verse 6. And when it came to the threshing floor of Nacon... Uzzah put his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Now, the region between Kiriath-Jerim and Jerusalem is very hilly. The threshing floor would be level, but the oxen are either have to climb up to it or, or climb down to it. And this particular threshing floor is owned by a guy named Nacon. We don't know anything about this man. We don't even know where the threshing floor is. It's just Nacon and the threshing floor. But we do know that his name sounds like the Hebrew word for steadfast or steady or stable. And the author wants us to see the irony here of the oxen stumbling on steadfast, even as David and Israel stumble on the steadfast word of God. He's trying to point this out to us. So, the oxen stumbling sets the cart off balance. And Uzzah, walking behind, does what any one of us would do. He reaches up to steady the ark. Now, Uzzah and his brother are sons of Abinadab. Abinadab is a Levite. So, according to Jesus, Abinadab is a Levite. According to Josephus, I'm sorry. That's the only record we have of this. But we assume that's correct. Levites can transport the ark. Let me, let me explain to you what this ark looks like. It's a large box. It's got two rods probably near the bottom. And so the Levites were to carry the ark by the, those rods uh, so that they didn't have to touch it. That's the way the ark is supposed to be transported. They carry the ark. They don't put it on a cart. They carry it by hand. This is a way of giving honor to the ark. So... The Levites are allowed to transport it, but they can't touch it. And we saw that in Numbers 4. 
penalty is death. So as, as Uzzah touches the ark, we see two violations of God's commandments. Now, the ark is on a cart. Now, not, not, oh, 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 they put it on a new cart. You know, so maybe that was some way of trying to honor what the ark was. Oh, but it's new. You know, not like that Philistine dirty cart they put it on. This is a new one. They put it on the cart. And Uzzah is, he touches it. Comes into contact with the ark. Now, the text isn't real clear about why he does it, but I think we all understand what happened. He's acting on instinct. It's a reflexive action. It's falling. Maybe he saw that the ark was in jeopardy and, and just had to do something. Well, now, what, what could be wrong with that? I mean, he's doing a good thing. If the ark fell, it would come into contact with the ground. It would be contaminated. God's holiness would be contaminated. It would be soiled. It would be damaged. David would be shamed. The whole nation would be shamed, suffer embarrassment. These are all really good motivations. Somebody had to do something. And our human reasoning begins to take over here as we understand exactly what's happening in the story. Surely God didn't anticipate that the ark was going to fall. Surely for the good intentions of Uzzah's heart, God will forgive. Maybe he'll look the other way. Maybe God will realize, well, that's a good thing. And God would honor Uzzah for doing what he did, for saving the ark when, when God couldn't. Oh, yeah, what happens there? Well, let, let's see what happens. Verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Now again, the similarities between this story and the story of Nadab and Abihu are startling. Again, what was supposed to be a national celebration as an entire nation watches, it turns into a sobering and a fearful moment. And again, we see the pure holiness of God. And it will not, brothers and sisters, it will not be compromised. God will not allow his holiness to be compromised, even by someone with good intentions. And again, we see the results of a clear violation of God's word. And they are fatal. How does David react? Verse 8. He was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Peretz Uzzah to this day. Now, the text doesn't tell us where David's anger is directed. Uh, it sounds like he's mad at God, but in just a few minutes, you're going to find out he's not mad at God. I'll get to that in a minute. Perhaps he's angry that he allowed all this to happen. Perhaps he recognizes that he's in charge. Perhaps he's thinking he should have known better. Perhaps the music and the celebration and all the people gathering there began to cloud his thinking. Perhaps he took the words of his father in heaven for granted. And now he realizes that he's made a mistake and someone else has paid for it. Now David, David has been impacted heavily. And he takes his time pondering what he's going to do next. That leads us to Act 3. And the three months. Verse 9. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. 
And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Okay, so we know he's not mad at God. He's actually in fear of God. But he makes a significant statement. And it would be easy to miss this. Because we need to understand what's, what's involved in, in, in this statement of how can the ark of the Lord come to me. David realizes his sinful acts. He said, how can the ark of God's presence, how can the ark of God's holiness come to a sinful man like me? He's afraid of making another fatal mistake. He's afraid of somebody else dying. And he's also afraid of offending God again. And David recognizes the pure, utter holiness of God. And that paralyzes him. He's hesitant to make another move. That's probably the best decision he's made yet. Music and celebration stop. David sends the people away. Verse 10, so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. What's a Gittite? And another individual we don't know anything about. The only time he's mentioned, he's a Gittite. Meaning he was a resident of Gath. Do we know who came from Gath? Goliath. The Philistine. So we're assuming because of David's trust in him and because of his loyalty to David that this man is converted. He's a converted Jew. David trusts him enough to leave with him probably the most precious national treasure that Israel has ever had. And God blesses this Gittite. 11, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. So Obed-Edom keeps the ark while David ponders his next move. And the ark's presence in this Gittite's house brings him and his family blessing. And that kind of leaves us scratching our heads a little bit, doesn't it? Why so harsh on Uzzah, but this guy gets to keep it in his house? It's there for three months. I don't know that I have answers for that other than Obviously, this man is faithful and clearly is following the guidelines that God has given for the handling and the transport of the ark. Otherwise, he'd be dead too. God honors that. So we've seen these three acts. We've seen the music. And once again, we see a huge celebration. We see a, a big parade, a lot of dancing. But is it Is it a celebration that honors God? It's a good question to ask here. Is it focused on him or his word? Is it a celebration that makes people feel good? Does it fill them with national pride? Oh. You know, there's nothing wrong with feeling good. Amen? It's okay to say it. Amen. There's nothing wrong with feeling good. Nothing wrong with national pride. Amen. They're not evil things in and of themselves, but when the word of God takes second place to either our emotions or our nationalism, there's trouble to be had. Brothers and sisters, you and I are Christians first and above all other things. Any label that comes after that has to fall under that, not over it. Political party affiliation, ethnicity, 
favorite music, favorite color, whatever. When we stand before our judge, and we will stand and give an accounting, by the grace of God, if we believe in Jesus Christ, we'll be ushered into glory. Okay, but when we stand and give our accounting, nobody's going to want to know what political party we belong to. Nobody's going to know what our stance was on the oil reserves or rock and roll music or any of that stuff. So we need to understand that, that nationalism or patriotism to this great country that God has built around us, amen, is secondary to our Christianity. Now, that, that, that's just a little lesson in there. We, we, we saw this mistake, these two mistakes. David, in his exuberance, makes a mistake in allowing the ark to be transported in a different manner than what God prescribed, violating God's commandments. And violating God's commandments is called what? Sin. It's sin. Uzzah reacts instinctively, we think, and commits another sin. And he dies. David's sin causes the death of another, and this is sobering to David. It's a good reaction he had there. And then we saw these three months. David seems to realize that the ark is not just some box that somebody built, not just a symbol, but a construct designed by God himself to show the world that he is among his people. It's not an amulet. It's not a keepsake. It's not a lucky charm. And that's what the Jews found out when they took it into battle. It wasn't the ark that was going to save them. It was God. It's not an icon or an idol or anything that's going to bring good fortune. It's the ark of God's presence. It's called the ark of the testimony. And David very wisely takes his time in figuring out what to do next. So we have some practical lessons here. And some of these we've already learned in the story of Nadab and Abihu. First, we should never undertake a big product, project without praying. We should take our, the things that we do. And, and you know, I, I even want to recommend to you that you don't undertake anything without praying. Everything, you know, we're supposed to be praying without ceasing. Sometimes we put prayer aside so that we can make plans. Prayer should be part of our plans. Second thing we can learn is we don't get to do things our way. We don't get to make all of this up as we go. Jesus is our personal Savior, amen, but he doesn't tailor our beliefs or our practice of our worship to our personalities. We don't get to mold our relationship to God to our liking. He's not there to please us. We don't get to mold our relationship to God to our preferences or our instincts or how we feel. Worship and, and the way we live is to focus on God, not on how we think things should be done. This just feels right to me. Anybody remember the Debbie Boone song, You Light Up My Life? I hate it. Because <laughs> she says, how can this be so wrong when it feels so right? I wonder how I felt about that. God bless Debbie Boone. She's a great singer. Great Christian. Now here's another practical lesson we can carry from this. Each one of us is responsible for our own sin. 
Isaiah wasn't able to say, well, you know, David, the one who put it on the cart, it's his fault. Blame him. David may have ordered the cart to be used, but Uzzah's the one who touched the ark. It's kind of clear. Right up until we begin to factor in our human emotions on all this. And, you know, it's almost natural to blame someone else for making us do something. We can't blame someone else for making us angry. Ooh. We can't change God's rules and guidelines for his church because we feel strongly about an issue or what's going on out there, current events and everything. We don't get to blame someone else for our own sin. And likewise, we don't get to change things up because the culture is changing. Oh, here's a good one. David may have thought, see what happens? David may have thought, oh, the Philistines use a card. That's a pretty good idea. I think I'll start using a cart. I'll just make a new one. I'm sure God's going to be pleased with that. I believe that these old commandments are old-fashioned. And God is doing something new. He wasn't. God is unchanging. So we can't let the culture influence the church. Okay, those are, those are good things, right? I mean, culture changes every day. God is unchanging. It's good practical things. What, what do we learn? I mean, the whole reason for this series is to learn about the character and nature of God and his plan of redemption for his children in these Old Testament passages. What do we learn about his plan of redemption for his children? Well, you know, we, we know his word is to be obeyed, particularly where it's clear. The result of disobedience is death. Whether we mean to sin or not, that's a tough one. It's revealing that there is a sacrifice in the Old Testament for unintentional sin. Is there in Leviticus chapter 4? Take a look at it this afternoon. The whole chapter covers it. Why is this necessary? Because particularly if, if God knows our hearts and knows we didn't mean it, why is it necessary when we don't mean to sin for reconciliation to occur. Let's go back to me wounding my wife with a consult heart. I didn't mean to do it. I felt terrible when I saw the bruise on her arm. It was huge. She was incredibly gracious. She was incredibly forgiving, just like God. Amen? But that injury still hurt her the evidence of the injury was still with her. She still suffered pain. She refused to carry the offense, but the bruise remained. See, this is what happens when we sin against God. This is why Jesus bears the scars and the wounds of the crucifixion. And those of us who confess him as Lord and Savior, those who repent from their sins, turn away from them and towards him, are forgiven and redeemed. But the scars remain. And they're not there to accuse us. They're not there to make us feel guilty. They're there to remind us of the cost of our salvation. 
They're there to remind us and make us grateful for the fact that Jesus was willing to bear those scars so that we could live forever with him. So is it sin if it's unintentional? Yes. It's still an offense to God. And it must be reconciled because God is holy and he is just. Jesus did that on the cross. Otherwise, we're all doomed. Because I'm going to tell you something. Every day, every hour, maybe every minute, I sin unintentionally and you do too. God provided the ultimate sacrifice for that unintentional sin in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. I love that. Let's go. Let's go just a little bit deeper for a moment. Remember David's comment in verse 9? How can the ark of the Lord come to me? David recognized the pure holiness of God. And in doing so, he also recognized his lack of holiness, his lack of purity. He might just as well have said, how can something so holy come to someone so sinful? The answer we just witnessed is that one man has to die. Did you see that? As it wasn't perfect, he's not Jesus Christ. But he pointed the way to the one perfect man, Jesus, who would die as a testimony to God's holiness and to bring God's holiness to everyone who believed in him. Okay, that one's pretty good, amen? There's more. Watch this. The ark represented God's presence among his people. It's frequently called the ark of the testimony. Testimony that God is living and active in the world today. But, but we no longer have the ark. I mean, isn't that what the Indiana Jones movie was about? Going and finding the ark? It's gone. We don't know where it is. And no one can find it. But I'm going to tell you something. You and I know where it is. We know where the ark is. The Spirit of God dwelled above the ark. Brothers and sisters, it dwells in us. You and I are the ark. We are the testimony of God's presence in the world. We are united with Christ, one with him, and he is holy. And because of his holiness, we are being made holy. And no one can touch us. Did you hear that? No one can touch us. The word tells us. No one can have an eternal impact on us. Scripture says that no weapon fashioned against us, you and me, brothers and sisters, as children of God will succeed. We belong to our Father in heaven. And just as much as the ark of the testimony did, he will protect us and preserve us. And he will work in and through us in the same manner. We no longer need that work of wood and gold because we are it. The lesson of Uzzah is not about making rash moves. Listen carefully. The lesson of Uzzah is not about making rash moves. It's about God preserving everything that belongs to him. And that's you and me. 
Let's pray. God, we give you thanks that you had that ark to show us how much you love your holiness, Father, and how much you will preserve it and protect it, Father. And, and now your spirit dwells in us. We are one with Christ. We keep on hearing about union with Christ in the Sunday schools, Father. Here it is right here. We thank you that you have promised to protect us and preserve us. Oh, Lord, you have not promised that we won't have hardship. Matter of fact, your word says that we will. But your word says that there's something beyond any hardship the world would give us. And that's the eternal presence with you. Basking in your glory, Father. Eternally being drawn closer and closer to you. We give you thanks for the sacrifice that Jesus made. To bring us into your presence. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back again next week with the story of Micaiah. You've heard all these stories about people that messed up. Now we're going to tell you what happens if somebody does it right. Yeah. Buckle your seatbelts. Praise God. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on sermon audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at wbfva.org. Just click on giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.